0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 17th of May 2021 and this is episode 208. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to historian Dr Anne Sampson about her recent book, Field Marshal Lord Kitchener. This is published by Helion. Anne spoke to me from her home in Hertfordshire. Anne, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War?
1: Well, big question. Um, I'm an independent historian and I got interested in the Great War due to young smuts. Uh, When I was doing my master's dissertation uh, here in the UK, having grown up in South Africa, um, I vowed never to do South African history when I left there. Uh, because we'd been brought up on the Anglo Boer War, etc., etc., uh, pretty much like Henry and the Tudors here in the British education. Anyway, um, I was going to specialise in Russian history, but as a requirement for my master's, um, if you couldn't speak the language, you couldn't do that topic. And there was no way I was going to master Russian in two years of a master's. So defaulted back to Yanni Smart, having discovered that he'd got onto the British War Cabinet. And in working on that, Uh, as my dissertation, discovered that he had led the forces in East Africa during the First World War, which we had never been taught at school. It sounds very familiar to what people say about the First World War and aspects here in, in Britain. And... So I decided to investigate and that became my thesis. Whilst working on my thesis, I discovered obviously Kitchener had a major role to play. And very interestingly and crucially for me, he was anti going to war in Africa. And I thought this needed investigation. Discovered that he owned a farm in Kenya, and given his reputation here in the UK uh, and what I'd grown up with in South Africa being very negative because of the 1899-1999 war, um, thought the worst. Kitchener had a coffee farm. That was it. Uh, that's why you don't go to war enough to protect your coffee farm. <laughs> Put that to my supervisors who very wisely said, if you are going to challenge a man of that status, you need to have something more substantial. And to back you up. And so that led to um, an investigation of Matt where the farm was actually situated, etc, and I proved my case in challenging Kitchener, um, for my thesis, but this still nagged at me that this man didn't want to go to war in Africa and it was looking like it was for political reasons, um, or that we did go to war in Africa. And so I started investigating and 20 years later um, came up with Kitchener the man, not the myth.
0: So that, that that brings me into my second question, why write a book on Kitchener?
1: Well, because in my d- trying to work out why he didn't want to go to war, I just discovered that there was so much about this man that we didn't know um well i mean we did know them know it because it's all in the biographies about him there's over 55 biographies of the man i think i'm number 56 or something i've lost track of all of them um but it struck me that a third of all these biographies focus on gordon and how gordon got himself stuck in cartoon and then kitchener comes and rescues him um and all the focus is on the military aspects of him. Uh, you know his military actions, how he's performed at Paderberg and um, all this kind of thing. But there was so much more to the man reading between the lines, which the authors had picked up on, but hadn't actually done anything. So not being a military person myself, I cannot tell you about the facts, etc. I purposefully avoided those. Um, I started to look at who this man was um, and to understand. And there were themes that constantly kept popping up. Um, learning of languages, um, his incredible logic um, and being able to see the bigger picture etc and i just kept uncovering things and eventually this book said it had to be written down it, it wasn't something i set out to do i'm a first world war africa specialist that is what i do um, but so much of what was coming out of back and i said write it down um, because it actually explains a lot of who this man was and why things happened the way they did in terms of military experience and i, I think one of the big things that i discovered was that he was a man who Learned mistakes, um, and so it became a trajectory. You know, the biographies all seemed to look at him as a man at a particular time. So he was already this amazingly full 64 year old um, back in 1899 without the author actually saying so, but that's how they sort of looked at him. Um, and I just thought, no, there's a lot of development going on here that fascinated me, um, and how he grew into this man who had just such a wealth of knowledge, insight, etc. And I thought that needed to come to the full. And uh, along the way, it answered a lot of questions about South Africa, etc. as well. So, yeah, that's how Kitchener came to be.
0: So, could you start by giving us a brief overview of his long and distinguished life?
1: Yeah, okay. Um, I've actually written down all the dates, etc. Because <laughs> I'm not a historian of dates. Um but, and I think it's important for the context to get a flavour of age etc along the way. So he was born on the 24th of June 1850 in Bally Lang- Valley Langford in Kerry. So he wasn't born in Britain although he was born to British English parents and I think that is very crucial um, for, for his development. He then at the age of 13 moved to Switzerland where he was schooled in Villeneuve on Lake Geneva. His mother died at that age um, and I'm not going to go into the details here of his, his childhood, all the biographers tend, tend to do that, um, and it was quite an informative time of his life. He first then comes to England, that I can trace, at the age of 17, the first time he sets his foot on the Isle, in 1867, and that is to do his crammers for Woolwich. Uh, the following year he enters Woolwich and trains as a Royal Engineer, And on leaving Woolwich, even before he's commissioned into the British army, he goes across to visit his father in France, who gets him a role in the Franco-Prussian War. Um, And so 1870, he's fighting with Chansey's army on the side of the French in the Franco-Prussian War. And again, this is a very informative period for for Kitchener. He goes up in a hot air balloon, um, so is one of the few British officers to actually have been in the air Uh, before we even get to World War One, you can see where this is heading. Um, And he apparently is an ambulance driver Uh, in this campaign and so he is seeing the effects of bad planning and um, bad weapons etc on human loss of life and what that does to an army. Uh, This is one of the themes that eventually you see coming through his his life. He then gets appointed um, to Chatham in 1871, comes back from uh, France not well at all and has to face the Duke of Connaught, who's chief of the army, uh, for having been a British soldier fighting in a foreign country's war. And his army career is nearly ended at that point. Uh, The Duke gives him a severe reprimand and then says to him, if I'd been you, I would have done the same thing. Um, And I think this is another one of the traits that we see coming through Kitchener later on, where he becomes a very uh, harsh disciplinarian, for certain things, but underneath, he kind of gives a a wink or turns a blind eye um, to to certain behaviors. So if it's going to be something that is going to hit the press or cause an issue with discipline, he takes the Duke of Connaught's harsh line. Otherwise he understands where the youngster is coming from and says, don't do it again. but carry on, and there are a number of instances in his life around that. Um, So that's all out of the Franco-Prussian War experience. He then goes on to Chatham for a year or two, and is then invited to Austrian manoeuvres in 1873, where he dines with the Kaiser, another important trajectory there. one of them being that he can actually speak German and French. So he's able to communicate locally. Comes back to Aldershot in 1874, where he's teaching things like photography, etc., and mapping. He is a phenomenal photographer. And that is apparently one of the reasons why he's appointed to join uh, Condor out in Palestine in November 1874. He goes out to Palestine where he maps the the territory or the the Holy Land. Um, And this is another phenomenal experience and something that needs a lot more work done to it, uh, on it. Um, He apparently names something like 470 new places in the Holy Land and links them up with the the Bible or the, the Hebrew Scriptures at the same time learning Hebrew uh, and living with the the local population out in the the desert. From there, he moves on to Cyprus in 1878 with Lord Wolseley, and due to a fallout there over mapping and the level of detail, um, he gets sent to Anatolia in Turkey to be a a, a consul, and he spends some time, eight months, in Kastamanao, uh, in 1879 there, where he learns Turkish as, as a language. And I don't, I don't know if you um, listeners you know, you know, realise that in learning a language, you actually learn about the culture that you're living with and learning about. So he's become very culturally astute, even by, by this time of his career. Um, Wolseley gets sent out to South Africa to deal with the Zulu wars, etc., I think this, we've got the Battle of East Loana or something happening out there. Uh, and Kitchener gets returned to Cyprus, where he sets up a museum uh, quite involved in archaeology, etc. And he manipulates, uh, quite, and I use that word purposefully, um, he manipulates his way into Egypt. Uh, and the exact circumstances and how he does it was still quite vague even with all these biographies about him. But he ends up in Egypt in 1882, uh, gets fed up with not being allowed to rescue Gordon. He's um, sort of an intelligence agent about a day's march away from Khartoum, but he's refused to go in. Being very upset, Wolseley is then bringing him back to London and wants to send him to Ireland to count tents as punishment. Um, by this point, Kitchener has learned and or been taught uh, by Pandeli Raleigh how to use a network. And so, using his network of Lord Salisbury, Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, um, he gets sent to Zanzibar in 1885, where he is on the boundary commission with Germany and France to determine where British and German East Africa um, is going to be divided. And as far as I know, this is the only boundary in Africa have actually been walked before it was determined. Um, Kitchener didn't make friends there because he spoke Arabic and mixed with the locals and happened to annoy the Germans and the French um, by his trying to stick to fairness and make sure that the Sultan of Zanzibar's territory was recognised as well. Um, In 1911, apparently, when he went back to Africa, the local Arabs Uh, remembered him and met up with him and had a good party, uh, or so to speak, um, in in the area. So he made good friends along the way. Back to Egypt, uh, where he avenged, revenged Gordon, and then to South Africa in 1900 with Lord Roberts um, to 1902. From there, he moved on to India uh, to work with Lord Curzon. Uh, from 1902 to 1905 when the two of them fell out and Curzon resigned and continued on in India longer than his stay, uh, partly because the Liberal government uh, didn't want to rock too many boats and think get the public thinking that they were undermining Kitchener. He stayed until 1909 with Minto as Viceroy, Morley was Secretary of State for India. That plays quite a big part later on. Um, well, immediately, because Kitchener is then unemployed in 1909 and he goes on a huge world tour um, on his way back to England, goes to China, Singapore, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, the latter two. He actually helps them develop their um, defence plan for if there is a world war um, and recommends railway lines etc another big theme of Kitchener's railway lines. Uh, off to America where he spends two weeks with the American Military Academy and is then called back to Britain. Um, in between all of this he has bought a farm in Kenya and has bought broom house in Canterbury and he oversees the 1911 coronation becomes consul, appointed consul of Egypt in 1911, where he stays until 1914, happens to come home on business leave in uh, end of June, predicts war is about to happen because of the assassination of the Duke, tries everything in his power to get back to Egypt before war breaks out and ends up being called back to London on the day he's off the boat um, to come and enter into discussions with Asquith and become Secretary of State until his death on the 5th of June, 1916. So, um, that's 66 years minus 19 days worth of history in, what, three minutes?
0: So, he he was a man of of considerable achievement, and how did his contemporaries see him? (laughs)
1: Right, quite a mixed bag. Um, So his seniors, I think it's it's quite worth looking at some of his seniors. Wolseley, as I mentioned earlier, did not like him at all. Um, Broderick, um, Secretary of State for War after the 1899-1902 war, has a pretty good handle on on who Kitchener is. He, He understands him and actually says to him, no matter how much you try and avoid the War Office, you are going to have to go to the War Office at some point. Um, and and Broderick is with him all the way through in stages from Cyprus, Egypt um, etc. Lord Cromer is an interesting one, uh, Evelyn Wood. He seems to tolerate Kitchener. Um, He sees his strength, but doesn't quite like him as a man until he hears that um, Kitchener actually shed a tear at his wife's funeral. That's Cromer's wife's funeral, Kitchener's wife. Um, So Cromer tolerates him and he He sees the strengths that Kitchener brings to a force. And for the first time, when a British army is working with a foreign army, it has the foreign commander-in-chief commanding the British army. Um, That sounds a bit convoluted. But Kitchener was in charge of the Egyptian army at this point. And a unit gets sent out from Britain to support the, the Egyptian army in the attack against the Mahdi. And Cromer gets permission to leave Kitchener in control because it's his military, it's his battle plan that has been put together. And Cromer recognises that to bring a a British army officer in who doesn't understand the local situation, as Kitchener does, to take control of the Egyptian army alongside the British army is just going to cause chaos and it's not going to work. Um, And so Kitchener, for the first time ever, um, as a foreign as the leader of a foreign army, is in control of the British army. And you can see that that's going to cause problems later on. Um, So Cromer has this mixed reaction to Kitchener, understanding him quite well. The liberal politicians do not trust him at all. Uh, Morley in particular, uh, Secretary of State for India, and Lloyd George cannot stand him. And that obviously plays out in the First World War. Minto, who becomes viceroy of India, has a really good understanding of Kitchener as well. The two work phenomenally well together, to the extent that Morley thinks that Kitchener has Minto under his thumb. Uh, So you can, yeah, it's really interesting interplay here. And obviously with Lord Curzon, we have the the power struggle. Uh, I do not get involved in the battle of who is right and who is wrong. Um, I look to see rather what Kitchener learned from the process or took away from that encounter, um, rather than trying to understand the complexities of the Indian army and the power struggle. In terms of his fellow officers, um, and here we're talking about the likes of Hague French Killy uh, Kenny, etc. Um, I think there's a lot of jealousy. Uh, Kitchener's promoted over them, um, Cromer's case in particular. Uh, Roberts as well put him above 42 other senior officers in the, the South African War, 1899 19, to 1902. Um, he's And I think there's also an element of this, that Kitchener is not of the establishment. Um, He hasn't been educated in Britain, gone through the public school system. Um, He's a royal engineer. uh, And at that point, royal engineers were not meant to get very far, by all accounts. Um, And he ends up uh, commanding a cavalry unit. And there's a lot of comment about him not knowing how to use a horse or or ride a horse. um, And his horsemanship is very bad. And I can only put this down to the fact that he hasn't been through the cavalry brigade in in England Um, because in Cyprus and elsewhere, he's training his own horses. He's winning horse races himself, horses that he's trained Um, flats, jumps, you name it, Kitchener is doing it. Um, So there does seem to be a a lot of jealousy. But I think that stems from the fact that they don't understand him. Um, His whole cultural upbringing has been quite different to theirs. Uh, He much prefers the local population, relaxing out in the Egyptian markets, um, speaking the local languages, etc. And he doesn't participate in the the social life, particularly in Egypt, uh, where he has seen the negative effects of affairs. A lot of his men apparently um, ha- had breakdowns or committed suicide because their wives were found in affairs, etc. in the Egyptian clubs. And he just didn't want a part of that. So he stayed away, which meant he remained unknown to the men he was working with. And that causes people to misinterpret, etc. So that's his fellow officers. Um, in terms of rank and file, again, slightly mixed, but overall, the verdict is that they trust him with their life. Um, they might not like him, he might be harsh, he might be rigid, um, but he understands them and they know that he's not going to put them into any situation that they can't deal with um, and he's not going to be prepared to do himself. And he also gets his hands dirty if required. So there's a lovely story of him actually um, mucking in and helping rebuild the railway line in um, outside cartoon once it had been washed away, and they did that within a week, him with his, his spade. And also other stories where he walks around early in the morning in his dressing gown um, to go and see what's happening in camp before everybody wakes up and has chats with you know whoever's up and about um, on a a social level so he understood his his men I think Um, and there are comments in the the First World War about the men trusting what he says to do um, although they don't like it. Journalists was quite a mixed reaction as well Uh, Some liked him, some understood him. Uh, G.W. Stevens very much understood him. And he respected Stevens um, because Stevens never published anything without double-checking his facts. The journalists Kitchener had problems with were those who went on hearsay and didn't check things out. So that was a mixed bag. And those who um, really liked Kitchener, so his boys' brigade, if we want to call it that, um, or Kitchener's band of boys as they were referred to quite often, were a group of guys who actually stood up to him. Um, They had challenged him along the way and they understood where he was coming from and he respected them and was incredibly loyal to them. Um, and I, look, there was, is a saying or view that Kitchener didn't want married men around, pretty much every single one of his band of boys was either married when coming to work for him or got married working for him and he became godfather to numerous of their children. So it, it's a, a loyalty and a, a sense of respect that went both ways. Um, so again, that's his contemporaries, quite a, quite a mixed bag um, and we'll, we'll get to women later on just in case there's anybody questioning, uh, and hey, <laughs> not that- by choice, not by choice. <laughs>
0: So that brings us on, on how how he's perceived by contemporaries today. Now we know the poster, and you know he has been said he's not much better than the poster. The poster is in my room as it's looking down at me now. But so how how do we view him today?
1: Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the poster was um, oh Asquith's wife. She said that he was no better than a poster, uh, <laughs> and and little did she know. Yes. Um, well, I think today he's quite he's got quite a mix. Uh, view or following Um, I think generally here in the UK he's seen as one of the donkeys who led the lions Um, And unless you you really look at what he did, um, as I mentioned earlier, I was challenged with taking on the myth of Kitchener and undermining this great hero um, of of the time Um, and in fact I've changed my views on him um, over over my period of of investigating him Um, he is seen today as a murderer um, of the the boys in World War I, Pell's Battalions, etc. but also of the 1899 to 1902 war. Um, and I understand that there is a nurse, Kent, who is calling for the removal of his statue there um, because of his murder of women and children in the 1899 to 1902 war. Little does she know what all this man actually achieved and how he's perceived and what he was doing um, during the war to actually try and make this better. Um, so he's got a very negative reputation over what we call the concentration camps South Africa and farm burning and that is permeated here uh, in the popular realm. Um. In South Africa, he's got a very mixed reaction as well. Um, Very interestingly, and I haven't been able to work this out, um, the Boers of the Afrikaans' population heritage um, are very anti-Kitchener because of the camps again and the farm burning. And that contradicts how the Boers at the time, so Louis Buerta, uh, Jan Smuts, etc., how they saw Kitchener. Uh, He was their hero. They wanted to rather have Kitchener as Governor General than Lord Milner. And in fact, one of the um, officers refused to shake Milner's hand at the peace treaty. But Kitchener was seen as as the man they wanted. Uh, The English population generally sees Kitchener as very favourably, although they don't know much about him. And I understand, although I haven't been there myself uh, he is very well respected in cartoon even today, um, and is looked upon very favourably. Um, so, yeah, still a very controversial figure today as he was back in back in the day, and I think that's part of what makes him the great character he is. Um, no no, amazing leader or good leader um, is going to be perfect.
0: I think something that might be worth just t- clearing up for the listeners mm-hmm. is to explain what, what you mean by the camps and the farm burning.
1: Right. Oh, yeah. Um, so the concentration camps in South Africa started off as a means to protect the women and children in South Africa, the Boer women and children. Um, the Boers had gone into mobile warfare. Uh, not quite sure if it's guerrilla warfare, but it's kind of a, a mix of mobile guerrilla warfare. And they were living off the land and Kitchener realised that to try and um, get the war finished as quickly as possible, if he stopped their access, the Boer soldiers' access to um, supplies on the the roof, on the hoof, um, they'd be able to bring the war to an end much more quickly. And so with the Boers' consent, started to move the women and children into camps. There was also this fear at that point already, uh, what we call the black fear, that um, with the women and children being on their own on the farm, some of the black population would take the opportunity to murder them. Um, So this was a way to protect the women and children. What Um, happened was that there were far more people being moved into camps than what had been anticipated. And I think this filters back to Kitchener's time in Sudan, where he had allowed the Sudanese women to be camp followers against army regulations. And the woman pretty much looked after themselves. So he assumed, um, based on his cultural experience of women, that the Boer woman would act in the same way, not realizing that Boer women lived very isolated lives and did not do well in close proximity to each other. Um, their hygiene habits, etc., were very, very different to the Sudanese, and so you end up with these thousands of women and children in becomes cramped camp conditions where they can't manage themselves but you've also got the usual issues food supply etc and so starvation uh, typhoid running through the camp etc and there's a big discussion going on as to whether this is an administrative issue or a military issue and it takes a while for this to be ironed out between kitchener and milner and that's what leads to a lot of the flack around the, the camps the farm burning is part of that um, where worse refused to be um, go um, surrender? Um, their farms were burned. All their animals were what they could take for food was taken, um, and everything else was burnt. Um, and that obviously caused a huge outcry as well. Um, everybody's livelihoods just absolutely destroyed for nothing. Um, and there is an interesting story where Hamilton talks about Kitchener turning a blind eye to um, a young soldier who refused to burn a farm. He did reprimand, he did um, court martial some who who refused to burn farms. Those were public uh, occasions, Um, but on the whole, he tended to turn a blind eye. It was a rhetoric versus a, a reality for him, um, which kind of backfired in a way. But that's the well, a long explanation of the, the camp and the farm burning. Um, Hamilton said Kitchener's worst mistake ever was to sanction the farm burning. It did his reputation irreparable damage.
0: So from your research, what was the most surprising thing you discovered about Kitchener?
1: There were a few. There's not just one. <laughs> um, I've already alluded to cultural awareness, uh, his incredible um, ability with language. He spoke seven languages. um, So I'll run through them very quickly just to give you an idea of the breadth. English, French, German, Arabic, Hebrew, Turkish, and Urdu. Um, Although he never spoke the latter because he didn't want to offend um, the other Indian communities whose languages he couldn't speak. Um, But he would quietly sit and listen in on conversation um, with a translator. Uh, following what they were saying and what was being translated, etc. Very wily man. Linked with his cultural awareness as well. He was a very a, a man of very very strong faith. Um, he was a very strong Christian. Had been involved in um, a group back in Aldershot old, uh, days, um, supporting military chaplains. But more than that, his experience of Arabic and living with the, the Arabs and in the, the promised uh, in the um, Holy Land. Um, he and learning Hebrew, he took on and accepted the Islamic faith to the extent that during his Sudanese campaigns, he participated in Friday prayers with certain of the, the tribal groupings uh, and they came on board and supported him. He also checked out whether it was um, appropriate to have um, start a battle on a Friday. Uh, with the majority of his contingent being Islamic. Um, and it was, and that happened to actually be a Good Friday as well. It wasn't just a, any Friday, it was Good Friday. Um, and he was told from the Muslim perspective that was perfectly fine. Muhammad had fought a battle on, on a Friday. And from a Christian point of view, it was fine um, because they were going to alleviate um, oppression uh, from um, for those that the Māori were oppressing. So a man of very strong faith, um, where he understood the spiritual um, awareness of people and need. And he used that quite strongly in his tackling of um, equality issues in Egypt, Uh, He learned Islamic law in order to reform the Egyptian um, environment and economy. Um, And he also refused to allow missionaries to set up where there were stable madrassas um, so that there wasn't a conflict uh, coming into the area. So that that I found really surprising and and refreshing. Um, Linked with that, he is one of the most egalitarian people I have ever come across. Um, Yeah, uh, it seems almost hard to believe when you see the poster. Um, But he, apart from the cultural aspect, there are three women who come to mind on this and who speak about it quite strongly. Mary Curzon, the Viceroy's wife, who was American, Um, She talks about Kitchener turning her from being a viceroy's wife into a political wife. Um, She became aware of politics of her own abilities. She worked with Kitchener to improve the health of the Indian army and of the Indian population. Um, And Kitchener, unlike Curzon, um, recognized the importance of the Fourth of July for her uh, and had a, a special dinner with an American flag. Uh, So Mary Curzon is very, very favourable. Kitchener did a lot to try and alleviate the issue between the two men, but failed. And interestingly, when Mary gave birth to a daughter, Curzon was quite upset. And it was Kitchener who mediated between the two um, in terms of the the hereditary issues around not having a a son. Um, Another is Alice Salisbury, the prime minister's daughter-in-law. She was Kitchener's probably uh, biggest confidant. Um, Reading the letters between Kitchener and Alice, um, he explained exactly what his thoughts were for the army um, in a way that you do not see him explaining to any male at all. It's almost as though she's the recipient of his innermost thoughts and expressions on, on this. And it doesn't appear that Alice feeds this information into government. Uh, her sister-in-law does, who later marries Lord Milner, Um, but Alice seems to be the sounding board for for Kitchener in a way that, yeah, you would expect a male at that time to have done. And then the other one is Millicent Fawcett, uh, the suffragette. He encounters Millicent in South Africa around the concentration camp issue. Um, She makes an appointment to go and see him and overhears a conversation where he's asking how many of the group are outside that he's going to have to meet because he's petrified of meeting women on their own. Um, there have been other incidents I think that, that led to this. Uh, Baker Pasha uh, being one of them, he's uh, experienced. But he's absolutely... petrified of meeting Millicent Um, and they have what she calls the most equal and productive meeting she's ever had with somebody of that level ever um, including British politicians back here in London Um, and after the meeting, Kitchener actually invites her and her colleagues to come for dinner, uh, which is quite an accolade in at that time. Um, and so all, I mean, Alice doesn't say because she doesn't speak out publicly, but Mary and Millicent are both very much of how Kitchener speaks to them. I think Mary actually says, Kitchener spoke to me like a man. Uh, he treated me like a man and understood where I was coming uh, rather than talking down to me. Um, and so they are very much for show this egalitarianism, and there is so much more of it as well. I should point out here that he has an issue with his um, niece, who happens to be Fanny Parker, the, the other suffragette, or another suffragette, I should say, um, who goes on hunger strike. And his issue with Fanny, his niece, is not because she's a suffragette. It's because she actually takes up arms against the country. Uh, she tries to blow up Robbie Burns's house um, early July, 1940, and ends up been arrested for it and goes on hunger strike he either he or his or her brother um it's not very clear who managed to negotiate um part of the amnesty but that leads to the wpsu i think i've got the initials right um participating in the war um, so there again although it appears on the face of it that he's against women um doing you know egalitarianism he's not really it's the, the violence that they bring in as opposed to what they're fighting um, the other thing that struck me was his sense of duty and his loyalty, uh, phenomenal sense of duty. Um, and that's part of his downfall as well. And then finally that he was so driven for peace um, he he's the one who initiates the 1899 or the 19 what becomes the 1902 peace treaty in South Africa. Um, he's learning Turkish law to bring about reform in Egypt in order to maintain the peace. Because we can see that the peasants are going to be so there's going to be such a disparity that if he doesn't do something, um, the peasants are going to rise up in revolt and that's just going to lead to bloodshed. So he looks to bring about reform to ensure um, peace. And he also leads uh, farming experiments um, in order to alleviate poverty as a means to bring peace. And then his speech when he leaves India, Um, sums up his views and says a commander-in-chief, somebody of his, uh, um, chief of the army, his responsibility is to prepare for war, make sure everything is ready for war, but then do everything in your power to stop it happening. So he never regretted going to, uh, not having gone to war in India. Um, I think he was the first uh, uh, chief of the army in India to not go to war, have a major war in India, um, which he seemed to be very proud of. And Interestingly, when he becomes Secretary of State for War in 1914, one of his conditions is that he will be allowed to attend the peace discussions at the end of that war. Unfortunately, he never gets there because he dies along the way. But he was very much promoting already at that stage that Germany needed to keep its colony in order to maintain a balance of power. Uh, so, so, those are the, the four sort of areas that, that really struck home uh, with, with Kitchener. And I don't, you know, they touched on in the biographies. But as, just as a cursory kind of glance over, um, and so i've tried i suppose I've emphasized the um, as part of his development um, and trying to understand him
0: and one of the controversies that, that has raged amongst historians is was, was Kitchener the right man to be Secretary of state for war uh, in 1914 at the start of the first world war, and what's your verdict on that debate
1: Absolutely. <laughs> um and I'm backed up by the um, Attorney General of the day, F.E. Smith, on that one. Can't argue with the Attorney General, can we? <laughs> um, but you probably want to know why I think so. Uh, and I um, I think his world experience, I think, just speaks for itself. Um, the fact that he had seen, had been involved in army manoeuvres all over. Um, one of the things I didn't mention when he was in Cyprus and um, or not quite Cyprus. When he was in Palestine um, and even in Egypt, he took every opportunity he could to go and observe other wars that were participating that were going on. So he went to the Balkans. He went uh, to see what was happening with the Russians um, and the Turks. Um, he, you know, he participated in maneuvers. He was involved in Chinese or the, the Japanese army maneuvers in 1910, 11. Um, he had seen what was around. He studied. Um, he went back to Germany at one point to study von Moltke's um, methods in German. Um, so he had, he had this war- broad breadth of military activity around the world. His cultural understanding allowed him to understand how the different countries were going to react. Um, he met with, you know, he'd had dinner a number of times with the Kaiser Um, and other sort of high-ranking officials across the board. Um, He was an amazing administrator. That was one of the reasons they sent him to Anatolia. Um, His role in in India and in Egypt both showed his administrative and the Red Sea littoral all showed his administrative ability. Um, Obviously, he made mistakes along the way, but you know, um, overall, I think he had the good balance with the two. And then he also had the personality and standing with the British population across the spectrum. Um, one forgets that it was Lord Northcliffe uh, who was pushing for Kitchener to be made Secretary of State for war. Uh, Northcliffe was then later involved in his decline. Um, but there are about five, I think, sort of big names, all vying for who convinced Asquith to appoint Kitchener as Secretary of State for War. Uh, and that includes Milner and Chamberlain. Uh, so so people who were quite anti, and if you look at their histories, um, not very favourable, were pushing for Kitchener to State for war. So, yeah, he he's... He, um, his ability, I think, to, to see what needed to be done on a grand scale, and I spoke earlier about his, um, his logic. He's, he, he had a very mathematical kind of brain, which worked well with him mapping, and I think he could see the, how the war was going to pan out. In that kind of way and everything that needed to be done in order to get there the problem was he didn't articulate it in a way that others understood um and this is also where his mistakes uh, some of his perceived mistakes come to the fore. You know, he's seen as very controlling. Um, however, if you look in the, at the detail, he only controlled where he didn't trust the person filling the post. Um, and people also say, well, yes, he definitely should have become Secretary of State for War because he was the only one to predict it was a long war, or well, it would be a long war. Um, interestingly, his logic for predicting it was a long war or was, was going to be a long war was because the Germans went on the defensive so early. Um, and. As a result of them making that move, he realized um, it it could be a a long drawn out war, which worked in his favor because he would then be able to build up the British army. which, yes, we had the British Army and we had the Territorial Army, but it wasn't a fighting force. Britain was the only country which didn't have conscription at that time. Um, And that's a whole other kettle of fish when it comes to Kitchener. Um, I don't think he was in favour of uh, conscription, although he sits on the fence the whole way through. Uh, But he sees this need to build up an army in order to prevent lives being killed unnecessarily. Um, And I think it's the interplay with the politician that leads to the massacres that, that we have. Um, and the bad, bad decisions. Um, or, you know, the, uh, yeah, I think Kitchener would have been horrified at the song. Um, he, he saw things were panning out very differently. And one of the things I think would be an interesting study for a, a military student of the future is to explore how Kitchener potentially would have fought. The war had he been in French lord French's position because he didn't agree with the bombardment um, and he didn't believe that so many shells should be unnecessarily wasted and he couldn't understand why um the bayonet wasn't being used as effectively as what it could be and he also continued to see a role for the cavalry um not in the traditional sense though but unfortunately he never wrote it down he never told people how he actually would have fought the war he didn't believe in bombing city or civilian um he was quite okay with a crypt um town to be bombed because that had the factory but civilians were to be kept out of the war as much as possible so i think you know Um, His his military understanding, his philosophy of life, and his administrative ability made him the best man for the job. He quietly got on and got things done um, when people weren't expecting him to do so. And it was, one has to remember here as well, that this was a huge experiment that Asquith was was putting into place because he was a soldier being appointed into an administrative civilian role, which hadn't been done for who knows how long. And and the the greatest fears of the Liberals were brought to to light, so they saw, you you have a soldier in power, um, he's going to want to go to war, Um, but it was a risk that needed to be taken, you needed, or Britain needed at that point, to bring these two poles together um, to be able to take on the, the war in Europe. Um, so I yeah i I think he definitely was the right man for the job um, at the beginning.
0: <laughs> and and what and what's I that one. And what's your assessment, having got to know Kitchener really well, of his legacy? And was he a man of his time or a man behind the time?
1: I think he was definitely a man ahead of his time um, with uh, egalitarianism. Uh, being one of them. I think he's even ahead of where a lot of us are today on, on that front. But I think more pragmatically and practically, um, the crowd control measures that we experience uh, you know, on the mall and other football events, etc., um, are down to Kitchener. Uh, he introduced um, the barriers um, that we have at, at these kinds of events. For the 1911 coronation, he kept the public away from being able to engage directly um, with the Uh, with a royal procession which caused some outcry at the time Um, but the fact that there was absolutely no disturbance on the day uh, was seen to be very favourable so we have crowd control today uh, due to Kitchener um, and that was from 1911. I think he together with Lord Roberts um, their reform of the Indian and British armies Um, are seen today. They might not be recognised. I know there's a lot of controversy over whether Kitchener did reform the Indian army or not. Um, I think I worked out that there were about 10 others after him who who changed things along the way as well. Um, So you can't blame one man for um, how things work out. There are a whole lot that play a part. But I think together with Lord Roberts, the two of them made the army respectable. Um, they made it a career opportunity um, and an, you know, somewhere where you could get employment and be looked after as well as doing your, your job. Uh, and he was involved in... He kept a very close eye on the territorial army reforms of the day and had his input into that in quiet ways. Um, linked with that, he took what was good and as a result, um, he set up a staff college at Quetta in India. Um, for the training of army officers and based that on Sandhurst um, so that men didn't have to go to huge expense to have to travel to Britain to become army officers. Uh, And I I assume that the staff college in India continues in a similar sort of way today. Um, And his other huge big legacy um, is education. Uh, The University of Khartoum has Gordon College, which he's founded in memory of Gordon. And legacy for himself, um, they built the... I think it's an eye hospital um, in Khartoum from 1916 and that is now subsumed into the University of Khartoum as well and then there's the Kitchener Foundation which continues over hundred years later still fundraising and supporting students across the globe Um, and Lady Emma Kitchener uh, who I refer to as K4 in the the higher the ranking or the um, descendancy uh, is patron of of that Um, and Ahead of his time, absolutely, in terms of education, uh, seeing how that would change and bring about egalitarianism. he was also one of the things that caused him trouble was wanting to use the local force and here i'm talking about the local african forces um in his army so he trained the egyptian army as earlier mentioned and he had them play a leading role he and Wolseley fell out in cyprus because he wanted to um, form a cypriot army which Wolseley objected to and i'm trying to explore, and I'm not sure how we're going to find this information, what role he played in South Africa in terms of arming local Black population. Um, We know that there were armed Blacks in the South African War. Um, Both sides deny that they were doing this. But given Kitchener's recognition of wanting to use local forces um, and recognising their contribution, uh, whether it's pragmatic or whether it's philosophical for whatever reason, um, philanthropic, etc. He makes a big move on this front. And that's one of the reasons he sends his brother to East Africa in 1914 as well, is to see how they can increase the local population to participate in the war um, if they have to go to war. Uh, and then I think again he's ahead of his time in terms of wanting peace and wanting to keep the balance of power um, which he was very much for um, at the end of the first world war even though he didn't get to see that I think we could do with him now
0: (laughs) and my penultimate question is what projects are you currently working on
1: right oh my word there is so much but um, I think the, the the big ones related to, to this are um, wanting to find out more about K two as I my hierarchy of men or Kitchener's. Um, K2 was Kitchener's older brother, HEC. He inherited the title in 1916. He was sent out to East Africa, as I mentioned, in 1914 from Bermuda, where he had retired from the West Indian Regiment, um, to go and look into recruiting the East African campaign, and then stayed on um, to take responsibility for the railways during the First World War in Africa. And in 1937, he died on a farm in Kenya. Um, so I think there's quite a bit to, to discover about K2, around his role in the First World War. He was a very private man. The papers do exist, but they're not, um, we can't access them at the moment. Um, The other part linked with Kitchener is I'm about to explore his interest in the medical and well-being um, of his men. Um, He was quite um, annoyed when the British army in Khartoum, or going into Khartoum, didn't have the right medical equipment. And he got the flak for it, um, despite having told the army officer that they needed to go back and get better uh, medical equipment. Um, Also things like um, wanting proper equipment that didn't break. He didn't want his men killed by faulty weapons. And that leads into the um, armaments controversy that we had during the First World War. Um, I want to explore more of that. Um, support of the Red Cross, etc., and his his use of local forces is again um, another issue I want to focus on there, and alongside that, going back. Well, I mean, this is all a diversion from my main work <laughs> and my main interest, and it all feeds into that in a way, is um, the diversity of the African campaigns of the First World War. Uh, I think a lot of people think that you know we've got all these, we know what happened in East Africa. Um, no, we don't. Um, I've been working on this campaign now for 20 years, and I keep bringing up new stuff pretty much every time I open a document. So watch the space in terms of what's coming up for World War One in Africa. Um, yeah, so not much to do.
0: And linked to that is where can people, people, where can people find out more about your work on, on the First World War in Africa and also your current book that we've been discussing today?
1: Right. Well, let's start with the current book. Um, more is available through Helion, H-E-L-I-O-N.co.uk. Um, they also have a, a blog that I did on um, From Pariah to, to Hero Um, on why I looked at Kitchener. Um, Then on the Great War in Africa, I run the Great War in Africa Association, which can be found at gweaa.com. Um, And that is a hub of information. So I put out a monthly newsletter on that, uh, of things that we found of interest. Um, And it's got bibliographies. It's got lists of people who were involved in First World War, male, female, child, enemy, um, ally, you name it. As we get them, they get added to that. Um, So it's all there. And then I have my personal website, uh, which has a weekly blog um, and other bits, Uh, The Samson's Ed Historian, dot wordpress.com. Easiest way is uh Google or whatever search engine and Samson Historian and it should come up. So I think those are the main places to find
0: and thank you very much for your time.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for the interest.
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition.